Hey, what's going on? It's At The Letters for Wednesday, February 9th. Arden Zwelling and Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. And uh, today is going to be a bit of a prospect episode. Uh, We're going to talk minor league baseball with Ben Badler of Baseball America. He's going to take us through the Blue Jays system, some of the the big names that you've definitely heard of before, maybe a few deeper cuts that uh, don't get talked about as much much and we're really just going to uh, you know cover off everything that's going on within the Blue Jays farm system because at the major league level Ben not a whole lot to talk about as we sit here today on February 9th um you know under normal circumstances this is when you and I would be like preparing for spring training camps to open in about a week and we'd be thinking about you know how the Blue Jays are putting the finishing touches on their roster and what we're going to talk about is you know pitchers and catchers report in Dunedin and that is very much not the case right now as MLB management continues to lock out its workforce and uh, really isn't even negotiating anymore on a new collective bargaining agreement. The MLBPA filed its latest proposal about a week ago and MLB's owners have opted not to even counter it. So I think, Ben, it's pretty safe to say that a week from now, you and I are not going to be talking about Blue Jays spring training. (laughs) Oh, I think that's very safe to say. Yeah, I mean, it's a good time to have Ben Badler on. He's just a great source of knowledge with Blue Jays prospects and all prospects around baseball. So looking forward to chatting with him. But yeah, we are not going to be in Florida. We might not even be talking about going to Florida. We'll see. I mean, it is, it's not great right now. The talks between these two sides continue very slowly. You know, MLB brings in this request for mediation is going too slowly. Well, you know, you didn't really talk to the players for about six weeks there. So that might have something to do with it. We'll see. I mean, I, I still remain somewhat optimistic, actually. And, uh, you know, you look at just the calendar. Obviously, it's going to start late. That's a fact. We might miss some regular season games, but they're going to reach an agreement. These sides need each other. There's no other group of players that even remotely compares to these 1,200 athletes. And there's no other group of teams that these guys are going to all go play for. So they're going to reach a deal. This union and this league will reach a deal. I still think that we get most of a season in. But right now, it's not looking great. Yeah, I seem to remember the commissioner saying that the lockout was meant to speed up negotiations. Hasn't quite played out like that to this point. And uh, I wish I was as optimistic as you are that we're going to see baseball anytime soon. I kind of I'm more pessimistic on it right now. I kind of think our winter of discontent shall continue for a bit longer until there's some like real tangible pressure on either side in terms of regular season games being missed and revenues being lost and paychecks not being made and a $5,000 stipend for the players not really getting it done with the cost of living of, of you know certain guys and and on the ownership side missing gates you know having to you know missing tv revenues things like that like until you know, pocketbooks start getting hurt. Like, I'm just not really sure where the leverage point is going to come to to move things forward towards an agreement. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think socially, the pressure is going to shift a lot. Super Bowl Sunday, you know, after that, things kind of shift to baseball. I think we're going to see the public discourse amp up a little bit in the next uh, few weeks. And I, I, yeah, I think within a month, camps are open. I don't know, like, if I put the over-under our net camps open we're recording this on february 9th do you think they're open in a month from now so for camps to open on march 
9th. That would take an agreement like probably seven days prior to that, maybe even 10, but we'll say seven, just because, you know, you're, you're going to have to have this, like, first of all, you're going to have to ratify an agreement. Then you're going to have to have all kinds of transactions going on. Like you're going to have to finish filling out rosters. Trades are going to happen. Arbitration cases still need to be settled. Free agency, all kinds of stuff. You got to fly guys in. You got to get them into camps. You got to get guys in from overseas. You got to do your intake processes. You got to do your physicals. You got to do COVID testing, all that stuff. So I'm you like at least a week to get camps open. So you're going to need a deal to be ratified seven days prior to that. So that really means you're going to need an agreement in three weeks. I don't see any reason to be optimistic that there's going to be an agreement in three weeks. I will say that in a month camps are open. And, and the reason is not anything that I'm seeing right now. It is just the knowledge or the expectation that at some point things are going to have to shift. The pace of these talks will have to accelerate. And we've seen that in years past when it gets really close to crunch time. Then we see things accelerate and we see some big strides made in a short period of time. And I still have at least a sliver of optimism that that will be the case. Yeah, a lot of things are going to have to happen quickly. Those negotiations are going to have to occur very quickly. An agreement would have to come quickly. And then once there is one, spring training is going to be like shotgun spring, man, like three weeks, maybe four. I'm sure players are going to want like 28 days. We'll see if they get that. Before 2020 season started, it was 21 days. So we'll see how long this camp is. But it's going to go like that. And then it's going to be right into the regular season. So at some point, things are going to happen very quickly and be very hectic. That's not how I would describe the pace of, uh, of things as we sit here right now. But that's okay, because we've got other things to talk about. Blue Jays system, Ben Badler from Baseball America is going to join us. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ben Badler. Uh, and we're going to touch on all things Blue Jays minor leaguers and, and just take stock of where this organization is at beneath the surface. So after this, when we continue on At The Letters, we will talk to Ben Badler. All right, Ben Badler is with us. Ben, thanks so much for the time. Very much appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to hearing your insight on the Blue Jays system because it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of an interesting time for the system right now, right? When you look at what's happening with the club at the big league level, they're very much in win now mode. Uh, and that's been fueled partly by some graduations from the system of some very good talent. It's also been fueled by some trades of some some very good talent. But I guess as as the Blue Jays go forward, you know, unless they raise payroll like by a pretty unprecedented and dramatic degree, they're going to need to continue doing those things. Like they're going to need to continue tapping into their prospect capital, the trade for players. They're going to need to continue having this upward momentum of young players supplementing the roster. So, how do you kind of feel they are positioned right now to continue on those two tracks? Like, do they have the talent? Do they have the depth to continue doing these things, or, or are the cupboards starting to get a little bit bare with what we've seen in the last couple of years? Well, I think the farm system has declined from what it was a year ago or, or two years ago, but for the right reasons, right, that you talked about. You graduate <laughs> Vladimir Guerrero and Bo Bichette and Guriel and Alec Manoa and all these guys, and you're trading to upgrade your big league team. You're trading away Austin Martin. You're trading away Simeon Woods Richardson and, and some, some other depth players too. So, yeah, like you're not going to have a top five farm system anymore. But, you know, obviously traded away Woods Richardson and Martin, but, you know, Guerrero and Bichette and, and Manoa, these guys are going to form the core of, I mean, what, what is already a very good young club. And I think a team that is positioned 
as well as anybody to be a, a consistent playoff, if, if not World Series contender over the next five years. It's, you know, there's there's still players in the farm system, obviously, who are, are talented. Obviously, Gabriel Moreno is is the, the big one. He's, you know, he's not Adley Rushman, but he's, to me, he's the number two catching prospect in all of baseball, um, a really, you know, close to the major league guy who, who could be an impact player. So the if you just look at the farm system, obviously it's not what it was uh, a couple of years ago uh, or even last year, but it is for the right reasons. It's They have this very talented young team that I, I think should be competitive. Obviously the AL East, there's <laughs> so some good competition around there. The, the Rays are consistently up there. They, they still have one of the best farm systems and, and the Red Sox and, and the Yankees and, and the Orioles are on the way up now. So it's, it's a very talented division obviously but uh you know if you just look around the the major leagues at the teams with the best young talent not just the farm system but the overall organization uh, i think i think the blue jays are, are really well positioned coming up for the next you know three three five years yeah they, they definitely belong in that discussion i think if you expand it beyond like you say the farm system to that under 25 group or that group of players that's you know two years of service time and below like that's a lot of talent there and we want to get to some specific names in the course of our, our time with you here. But I guess, you know, building on Arden's question there, generally speaking, you see some some farm system rankings coming out this time of year, and some of them vary on, on where they have the Blue Jays. So in your estimation and the estimation of BA, where do you guys see the Toronto Blue Jays farm system at this point? It's, it's more middle of the pack right now. Uh, I think having Gabriel Moreno in the organization, I believe we have him in our top 10 prospects overall. I don't have our top 100 in front of me right now, but he, he drives a lot of value for that farm system. So you, you have players like, you know, him, you know, Orelvis Martinez, Nate Pearson is, is still prospect eligible uh, for us. And, and Jordan Groshans and, you know, Gunnar Hoagland coming in at the, you know, their first round pick this year. So it's it's a pretty solid group, I think, at, you know, the top four or five you know, six, you know, Otto Lopez, those kind of guys. It's it's a pretty solid group uh, at the top and, and a strong number one in, in Gabriel Moreno. By the time you get toward, I think, the back of their top 10, it, it really starts to drop off. Not to say there aren't good players who are, are still in that, you know, 10 to 30 range in the system, but you, you just stack it up against the depth of, of some other teams. And, and I, I don't think it stacks up quite as favorably um, when when you compare with the rest of the organization, so it's not a an elite farm system the way it was a couple of years ago. Um, you know, it's still a solid you know middle tier type type system right now. And you mentioned the you know the value that Moreno is is driving, and it's been kind of impossible not to get flattened by the hype train behind him over the last twelve months. Like you know, you mentioned uh, he's he's number seven on Baseball America's top one hundred right now. He wasn't even on the top one hundred a year ago at this time. So it's like it's pretty impressive. Like that's a you know pretty big shot up that list. Um, like what is sort of the process behind that? result like what are you know sort of the traits and the abilities that that you're seeing from him that has really uh powered this this hype train behind him for the last 12 months yeah you know it's you know certainly i think last year was our most challenging year ever to try to put together uh, a top 100 or or top 30s for an organization because there was no minor league season we were going off of you know we got good new information from the alternate training sites and instructional league and, and some winter ball stuff, um, you know, in Venezuela or the Dominican Republic, but it's, it's nowhere near the same 
uh, as a normal minor league season. And, you know, teams outside organizations are not coming in to see those alternate training sites. So, you know, it sounded like Moreno, when he was at the alternate site in 2020, was like lighting it up there, but he also got there kind of late. So, you know, it's tough to say kind of a smaller sample, how much of that was real or, or not. You know, we liked him, obviously had him in their top 10 coming into the year, but, you know, hard to know how much stock to put into that. And then he came out in 2021 and yeah, like he missed time obviously with the injury, but the feedback on him was just glowing. And like he said, it's, evaluators who are, are typically ice cold in, in their honesty, if they don't like something, they're not afraid to say it, were coming back and just absolutely raving about Moreno. I mean, he's he's always been a very athletic player for a catcher with very good hand-eye coordination, uh, has never really struck out much. But if you go back and look early in his career, I mean, I think in the Dominican Summer League, his first year, his slash line was like two-something, 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 right? He was not striking out, but he wasn't really making any impact with the ball. So since then, I think his swing has sort of evolved to incorporate some more dynamic movements where, all right, he still has those innate bat-to-ball skills where he's not going to, he's never going to be a guy who's going to strike out too much. But as he's gotten stronger, as his swing has evolved, now he's, you know, learning which pitches to try to drive. His swing is more conducive to him hitting for for power too. So, you know, you have that on the offensive side. And then defensively, he's he's made a ton of strides too, where the the reviews on on his defense this year were were strong both, you know, in season and um, you know, after after it too, uh, when I went to the the fall league. So I think it's a really strong year overall in, in the minor leagues for for catching. Uh, obviously Adley Rushman with within the division with the the Orioles, but you know, guys like Francisco Alvarez with the Mets and Diego Cartaya and Tyler Soderstrom. And I think we have like a dozen catchers in our top 100. But, you know, you can make it maybe a case for Alvarez or maybe Kiebert Ruiz with the Nationals. But, you know, we're getting pretty consistent feedback that Moreno should be not just the number two catching prospect in baseball behind Adley Rushman, but should be in, in our top 10. So, yeah, like you said, it's been a pretty significant upward jump based on a lot of really, really glowing feedback from the the scouting community on him. That's really interesting. I mean, it's definitely an exciting prospect for Jay's uh, personnel, for Jay's fans, I think, to keep an eye on in the next little bit. Um, I'm wondering, like, what the data looks like to the extent that um, that that's out there for minor league players um, making their way up through the system. But for Moreno in particular, do you have a sense of what his max exit velos would be looking like? Like, where is that game power looking like for him as he advances further up through the minor league system? Yeah, I mean, I, I think early on in his, oh, I, don't, I don't have the exact exit velo numbers early in his career, but I mean, you could see it in his early career numbers. Like he was a young I think he probably signed to what, 17 or 18, just not a lot of strength, not really driving the ball. But, you know, if you looked at him a couple of years ago, it was more probably like topping out around 100, 101, two, something like that. You know, we have him, I believe last year it was up to 108. So, um, you know, it's it's not Vlad, it's not, you know, Bo, it's, it's not that kind of power. It, I think it's still more of a, like more of a hit over power type profile with him, but there is, you know, I would say average major league power in there, which, you know, if, if you have a catcher, it could be a, a plus to plus plus type of hitter. 
yeah, especially with the quality of uh, or lack of quality among catching in the major leagues right now for certainly on the offensive. And I mean, it's, it's just the overall package is a chance to be a, you know, a perennial all-star type of guy. I think. Does he chase a lot or is, is he pretty disciplined um, when it comes to that plate approach? It's, I mean, I, I wouldn't call him a, a selective hitter. I, I think he has started to make better decisions at the plate. Cause he was, I mean, even when he was in rookie ball, right? Like he could, Sometimes that that hand-eye coordination can be like a gift and a curse, right? Like, okay, there's this pitch on the outside corner, and I can make contact with it, but it's a 2-0 count. Should I really be swinging at that? Or that pitch that's, you know, 1-0 that's in the dirt, or not even not in the dirt, but, you know, outside the strike zone, and he has the, you know, the bat-to-ball ability to make contact and put the ball in play. But should I swing at that? No. So I think he's... He's gotten better at in terms of his selectivity in that regard, but it's it's still an aggressive approach. Uh, it's not a free swinger by any means, but I think he's gained a better understanding of all right. These are the pitches I need to be targeting. These, this is my hot zone where I should be, you know, trying to swing and, and do damage on on these pitches. And you're seeing more power come out that way. But you know, I, I don't think he's going to be a high three hundreds on base type guy or 400 on base type guy. Cause I, I don't think it's that, you know, it's not the Vlad type of uh, discipline or, or some of the, you know, elite hitters in the major leagues where, where you see that really, really tight strike zone discipline from him. Do you kind of grade offense for catchers on a bit of a curve, just considering like you kind of alluded to it, like major league catchers really do not hit anymore. Like I think the league average OPS for the big league catcher this year was like, or last year was, you know, in the high 600s. Like it's really nothing impressive. Like, so for a guy like Moreno, if he didn't stick behind the plate and if he, you know, say became a third baseman for a team that has a pretty wide open spot at third base and has since Josh Donaldson left, like would that change the evaluation of him offensively? I mean, often just as far as the volume of, I mean, he would get to play more, right? Like yeah. if you can play every day, almost at third base, you obviously can't do that if you're <laughs> catching and it does give your body a little bit more of a break to, you know, just be playing third every day instead of catching. But, you know, you do get extra credit, obviously, if, if you're able to stay behind the plate, the value of what you're able to produce, like you said, relative to the position is going to be significantly higher as a catcher. So, you know, sometimes I think we, maybe more so with amateur catchers than pro guys where we, you know, sometimes just as an industry, I think fall into a trap of, Oh, well, this guy is so good defensively as a catcher. If he just hits enough, what's well, like, well, maybe, but like you're still at the face major league pitching every day. Yeah. Right. So it's the, the bar is still really high to be able to, to hit that. But again, like you said, it's not, maybe it changes because of the quality of catching right now in the minor leagues is, is so good, but yeah, it's it. That's why it's it's even more enticing to have a guy like him who who you know can stick behind the plate and and be able to potentially produce what what he could um, offensively as well. So these things are always impossible to predict. Um, but uh, with that said, if in two or three years Moreno's up in the majors and he's hitting two seventy five, three fifty, five hundred with twenty homers, are you surprised? Shocked? Where does that land with you? Yeah, I think that's that's like pretty reasonable expectation of of what it, he could be if if everything works out. I don't know that's necessarily like the mean right. like average like yeah. expected outcome of of what he will be. But yeah, I, I think that's a very reasonable scenario where if everything goes right for him, he could be that type of guy. 
On the topic of Venezuelan catchers, I wonder if I could ask you about Louis Meza. He's headed the Blue Jays international class this year, got a, a pretty sizable bonus, and here in the Blue Jays didn't have a lot of money to spend because they signed George Springer in free agency. Um, like, How do you rate Meza at a very young age? Obviously, as difficult as it is to project these guys when they're 16, 17 years old, but sort of what, what's the book on, on him and the scouting report there? Yeah, one of the best catchers in in this year's international class for uh, not not just for the Blue Jays, but just overall. You know, some scouts think he's right up there with some of the better catching prospects who signed internationally in recent years. And there's been some good ones with, you know, I mentioned uh, Alvarez and Cartaya, two other Venezuelan catchers. So I saw him. It's been a long time since I've seen him in person, just because of the speed of of the inner national market and, and just the realities of, of how it works. I think it was in Aruba and I want to say November, 2018. So like these guys can obviously change so much in shoot two, three, four months, let alone <laughs> that long of a time. But um, yeah, I mean the, the updated reports on him, which, you know, are, are not analogous to maybe our draft reports where everybody is seeing pretty much every top player for the draft, you know, all the way leading up to, the draft, so not every team was was scouting Luis Meza, you know, super heavily by by any means, you know, leading up to January fifteenth. But the the reports have still been really strong on him, both offensively and defensively. So definitely want to see just how he does this year. I would I would think in the Dominican Summer League because I, I think he's a good player to add to the organization and, and a guy who has just at least the upside to be you know top ten in their system a year from now, the way that, you know, Manuel Beltre is right now. With, uh, you know, another top prospect for the Jays, Ralvis Martinez, he showed a lot of power in 2021, really opened some eyes and, and advanced his own stock, both within the organization and then more broadly. So, you know, as he takes his next steps, and he's still just gotten to those low levels of the minors so far, and clearly more tests await him as he makes his way further up. But, you know, where do you see the kind of range of outcomes for him? I mean, clearly you're talking about a very powerful infielder at this point, and yet there's not certainty in the same way that you might have with someone who's a bit closer to the majors. I mean, he's been a high-profile guy for, for a long time. Not that he's even been in pro ball for, for all that long, but uh, he's always been regarded as one of the better, you know, offensive-minded infielders, you know, since he was coming out of the Dominican Republic and, and signed in, in 2018. And every year he kind of proves that to still be the case. I, I think right now it's it's more of a power over hit type profile with him. Not that he's, you know, a, a bad hitter, but just the power has really taken off. It's it's really loose, whippy type bat speed. Pretty the chance for plus, if if not better, power once he's at full physical maturity, because there's there's still some more strength projection. In there, I think he's going to be a really big, strong man once he's done uh, filling out. And I don't think it's going to be shortstop long term. I don't think that's ever been a, a real expectation. Maybe the Blue Jays have, have been uh, more hopeful or more optimistic in, in that regard. But I think he has to be a, a more selective hitter. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen that. It seems like almost every time he moves up a level, he, he falls back into some bad habits and, and then is able to make adjustments. So he does need to in, tighten up his strike zone discipline. But I mean, he went on a stretch last year where it's like every day he was hitting a home run or, or a couple of home runs 
in a game for there was like a, a week or, or a couple of weeks there. So he has impact power and I think has a chance to to profile really well at third base. But like you said, he's, you know, still in in A ball and, and is gonna have to, you know, really tighten up his approach as he faces more advanced pitching for uh, for you know for that to continue to to work for him. You know, thinking about guys like him and Moreno, um, it kind of seems like the Blue Jays have had some pretty interesting recent successes on the international market. Like you throw in guys like Leo Jimenez and Miguel Geraldo, like the top 10 is kind of littered with these international guys. Is that exceptional at all? Like, do you think the Blue Jays are, you know, kind of doing better, like industry wide in terms of unearthing productive big leaguers or potentially, I guess, none of these guys are big leaguers yet, potentially productive big leaguers um, on the international market? Or, or are they doing a better job? of developing guys like what do you think's kind of going on beneath the surface there yeah i think they're doing a, a really good job in the international market and you can go back to you know there's been some staff turnover since then but you know guys like vladimir guerrero jr and uh you know lourdes guriel obviously a different you know situation i liked him quite a bit coming out of cuba there were people who did not uh, and i think it ended up being a really good value uh for the blue jays to to get him but but yeah, there's there's a lot more you know depth of of guys. Obviously, you know Orelvis Martinez and you know plenty of other guys. I mean, w- w- when they've spent big money on a player, they've they've typically hit on those guys. You know, Eric Pardino. We'll we'll see. Some of that is just the nature of you know pitchers just getting hurt, unfortunately, in, in his case. But yeah, it's a really good I think mix of both hitting on their their high end guys when they spend big money on somebody like Vlad Jr or Elvis Martinez, uh, but then also getting some of these, you know, more under the radar type guys like, uh, you know, like a Gabriel Moreno or, um, you know, or an Otto Lopez or, um, you know, some of these other guys like, you know, like Elio Jimenez, who who you mentioned. So I, I think they're doing one of the better jobs internationally in, in baseball right now. With Martinez in particular, I mean, is he someone, if he is off shortstop in a few years' time, is he someone who's likely third base, corner outfield? Like, is that where we see him? And then offensively, what does that profile look like? Is he, is he more of like a 35-homer guy who hits for a low average and just kind of delivers on that uh, power production side? Or you know, And of course, understanding that there's still a really big range for these guys. Yeah, I think defensively, third base is the best spot for him. Yeah, I remember seeing him when he was an amateur player in the Dominican Republic, and that's always kind of been the thought on him is, all right, here's a really high upside offensive type of infielder who will probably go to third base because, you know, just the range, the footwork, the the first step quickness is just not really there, I don't think, for shortstop, but uh, plenty of arm strength and and there's enough there defensively to you know with his hands with his arm strength to handle third base so you know still some defensive value there being able to handle third instead of having to you know go out to left field or, or first base or something like that and then yeah offensively it is it's more power than hit again not that he's a bad hitter or anything it's he's not like up there striking out all the time but the strikeout rate is higher than than you would like to see especially at the the a ball level so you know some of that just is cutting down on some of the the chase habits that he has so it'll it'll probably it looks like at this point end up being a little bit of a a lower average relative to the power numbers but i mean shoot i mean he almost hit 30 home runs this year in uh like 100 something games uh i'm pretty sure it was so 
Yeah, definitely a chance to be a 30, maybe 35 plus home run type guy down the road. Yeah, it feels like we've been hearing about him forever, but he's still, you know, he's still just 20 at Vancouver. When you when you're signing these kids at, you know, 16 years old and it's almost like prospect fatigue <laughs> sets in by the time they're, you know, the same age as the college junior that you're drafting. I like I think we rank Gary Sanchez number or like top 10 at least in the Yankees farm system for like eight years in a row. And it's like, well, he's still like 23. So <laughs> by the time he, he graduated. So yeah, sometimes that's that prospect fatigue sets in uh, a little bit earlier on, on some of these guys. Well, and it's, you know, it's maybe a little telling that we've come this far and we haven't even mentioned the name Jordan Groshans, who is like maybe one of the first guys that we would have talked about in, in prior years, but it kind of seems like he had this 2021 season in which, um, Maybe opinions have divided on him a little bit. Like it was still pretty good numbers. Like at double A is, and again, still a young guy, still just 21. Like I feel like, you know, his numbers look pretty good on paper, but then you look at the context of first round pick and uh, some of the expectations and the way he was being talked about in, in previous seasons. And then maybe it looks a little bit underwhelming in that context to certain people. Like wh- where do you kind of fall? Are you, are you trending more bullish on Jordan Groshans? Are you more bearish? Like kind of what's leading you in, in the direction that, that you're going in on him? So I think he, at this point, he's, he's sort of like a borderline top 100 prospect right now he, he didn't make the cut for our top 100 this year but he's he's right in that mix I mean there's not a great difference right between the number 84 prospect in baseball and you know whoever would be number 122 right, right. it's not like the difference between number 10 and number 50 um, it's it's all kind of the same tier of players so I mean the the good thing with Groshans I mean one he, he mostly stayed healthy, right, and, and just stayed on the field, which has been an issue for him previously. Uh, he did get a pretty aggressive assignment. I mean, as a 21-year-old who didn't play in, in high A before, they sent him to double A, and he really barely played in in low A in 2019 either just because the season ended after, you know, the foot injury. So not a, a guy with not a lot of experience still hit you know, 290, pretty solid, you know, bat to ball skills, you know, good contact hitter, but he's, you know, he's, I think Orelvis even has a little better chance of staying at shortstop compared to Groshans. And I still think Orelvis is a third baseman long-term Groshans. I think almost certainly is going to uh third base. And now, you know, we saw a solid year from him offensively, uh, at least in terms of the the contact, but the power uh, that was, I think, expected from him earlier on in his career wasn't really there. And maybe some of that is just orienting his swing more to contact this season. And maybe he can open it up a little bit more and, and take some more chances to try to drive the ball for some power going forward and, and just find that right balance between contact and power. But you know, that is one of the, the concerns now is, all right, well, is he, does he have the power, you know, to be an above average guy at, at third baseman uh, as, as an everyday player? Uh, you know, there's a little bit more of a kind of a split camp on that, certainly than there, there was maybe, um, you know, coming into the year with him. So, you know, a solid year overall, but still left with, you know, a little bit more of like a uh, lukewarm reviews than, than maybe expected coming into uh, the year from from a lot of the, the scouts who, who saw him this year. 
it is a pretty interesting question with Groshans, right? Like how you project him because, you know, obviously internally for the Jays, that is a, a position where they could use some help. And then even if you look at trade options that they could be considering or that other teams could be wondering about in the course of this um, extended stretch where they can't actually talk to each other, you, you do wonder about him in trade talks, right? So you've got, you know, Cleveland, for instance, a lot of Blue Jays fans love the idea of Jose Ramirez. Of course, Jose Ramirez is one of the best players in baseball. Who wouldn't love that idea? Then you start looking maybe a bit more realistically. you got Oakland. you got Matt Chapman. You know, as you were are kind of assessing Groshans, not only from a skill standpoint, but from a value standpoint, where he fits in the industry, do you think that he could be a centerpiece in trade talks for a Matt Chapman, for a Jose Ramirez? Like, where does he sit on that value scale to you? Yeah, that's a good question because when you know when you talk to scouts outside the organization who saw him this year, like there, I didn't I didn't get the sense that everybody was like like super fired up about Jordan Groshans, right? Like or Elvis Martinez is somebody where you can find scouts where if you know if you think or Elvis can just you know develop into like a you know, 275 type hitter will with his power. <laughs> and if he's hitting, you know, 30, 35 home runs, you, you can find people who think he's going to be, you know, a, an all-star third baseman. And you can also find people who are, who have more hesitancy on him and then see a lot more risk because of, uh, you know, some of the chase tendencies and, and the swing and miss risks that he showed in, in a ball. Uh, so you can find more of like a split camp on him, but you can still find organizations that would be really, really high on Elvis Martinez and you know certainly it's like I don't talk to every single person in in baseball right but I don't get the sense that there's a team out there at least that I'm aware of where they're viewing Jordan Groshans as like oh like we would love to target Jordan Groshans as you know this like you said the centerpiece of a trade for a you know an, a potential impact type guy I think you know or Elvis would probably be more of of that guy or, you know, I'm sure other teams would certainly love Gabriel Moreno. And I know the, you know, Blue Jays have some, you know, uh, some catchers who, who I like quite a bit, you know, with him and, and Alejandro Kirk. So, you know, it might be somebody on the, the major league roster, but I would have a harder time seeing Groshans as like the guy, you know, where you're centering a trade around him for, um, you know, an impact guy like, a, you know, like a Jose Ramirez or somebody like that. Yeah, it's interesting how kind of the stocks have risen and fallen over the last couple of years for like some of the reasons you were alluding to earlier, right? Like you get, you know, a pandemic season where there's there's no minor league games played and you're dealing with, you know, some maybe at times unreliable alt site data. And then, you know, last year you're finally seeing guys in games again and perceptions are changing. And like even along the lines of Ben's question with regards to trades, you know, the Blue Jays packaged Austin Martin and Simeon Woods Richardson in a deal for Jose Barrios. And at the time you look at it and you're like, wow, like that's a you know, look. Jose Brios is fantastic. He, you know, two top 100 prospects. Like, it seems like a fair price to to pay two top 100 guys at the time. And then you look at the Baseball America list now. Simeon Woods Richardson isn't even on it, and Austin Martin fell out of the top 20 down to around you know the sort of 45 to 50 range. Like, how have perceptions on those two guys, Martin and Woods Richardson, sort of evolved and changed? over time because it seems like the like i hate to refer to players in this way but it seems like the blue jays in, in a sense did sell a little bit high on those guys when, when they made that that deal at the deadline last year yeah i think woods richardson's stock has uh, certainly more than martin's i think has dropped more i think his he's always threw a lot of strikes uh and there's just maybe some questions just about the pure stuff that popped up a little bit more this year 
Austin Martin. I mean, we're just talking about Groshans and, and how, you know, at least, you know, the people we talked to you can't really find or we couldn't really find somebody who was like super fired up about him, but you can still find people who really liked Austin Martin. So I could see why he would be the kind of guy who would be the the centerpiece of a trade like that for, to bring in, uh, you know, a pitcher of, of that caliber, you know, and, and we still have him, at, I think like around, you know, 50 or so in our top 100. So he, he's still a very good prospect. And another guy who, you know, like Groshan's got a very aggressive assignment, I, I think to double a considering he, you know, 2020, he was at Vanderbilt. And not only was he at Vanderbilt, well, the college season got killed pretty quickly because of the pandemic. So he didn't even play that much there. So, all right, like he was at the alternate training site there, but it's it's not really the same. So he's skipping low A, skipping high A, you're sending him right there. Um, and he still had a, you know, a solid year in terms of the, the contact skills. He has outstanding strike zone discipline uh, and a pretty short swing. I think he's always going to make a lot of contact and control the zone pretty well, but it was really light contact with him. And, you know, I, I certainly would prefer to have uh, in general, a hitter who controls the zone and makes a lot of contact now and hope that he can develop power later, whether that comes through, you know, just more strength as he gets older or just from becoming, you know, more self-aware as a hitter of, all right, this pitch I should learn to, you know, turn on and try to drive for damage. Like, you know, we've seen like Christian Yelich or you know, Jose Ramirez is another good example of, of a guy who did that, never hit for uh, really any power when he was in the lower minor leagues and uh, now is one of the most complete hitters in baseball. But with Martin, I, I don't know that that's actually going to happen with him. And then, and then there's all sorts of defensive questions on him too, right? Like he's played shortstop and moved around the infield and, and the outfield, uh, but he still has throwing issues. So it's hard to see him playing the left side of, of the infield. So it's, it's probably the outfield for him. So you have these defensive question marks, you have this power and impact question marks on him, but at the same time, he makes a lot of contact, really controls the strike zone very well. Uh, and, you know, hit at least, you know, for average um, in a pretty aggressive assignment again to double a. So, um, you know, there's an outcome where he is, you know, an average to plus every day, big leaguer I'm not quite sure where probably in in center field or, or maybe at second base where the throwing issues might be um you know minimized so there's there's more of a, a like a I think a split camp of of guys on Mart where you can really find guys who are, are still in on him uh but you're also gonna see guys who are like eh, I don't know like there's there's some more there's some more red flags there for sure. Now, another player that the Jays have had some interest in so far resisted that interest, held on to him, would be Nate Pearson. I don't know if he technically qualifies as a prospect anymore, but kind of still in that young player territory. Um, and from my perspective this past year, he just wasn't throwing enough strikes. Like he just The yeah. stuff was still there. He's throwing hard. He's got good off speed. Just wasn't in the zone enough. I mean, what's your read on Pearson and what's next for him? Because you don't want to be too dramatic about it and say this is his make or break spring. It's all on this, you know, this upcoming spring. But, you know, it is a big year for him as he kind of takes that next step and what his career will be. Yeah. I mean, he's turning 26 this year. I mean, he it's. I don't know. He's such a he's such a tough one to figure out what to do with. Because, like you said, I mean, this guy still touches 
low 100s at times with his fastball when when his slider is on it's it's a plus pitch uh swing and miss you know he'll see it too with the curveball and and changeup at times um but like you said he he needs to throw more strikes needs better fastball commands and 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 then the other thing is he just needs to stay healthy i mean i, I just don't know that he has the durability to hold up as a starting pitcher long term and and throw 180 plus innings and in a season, um, I don't think we've ever really seen him throw more than like 105, 110 innings in a season. Some, you know, some bad luck obviously is in there. And then, and then there's the pandemic too. So uh don't want to hold that against him, but there's definitely some, you know, medical red flags in there. So I, I think, you know, he, if he can handle a starter's workload, it's, you know, still a potential mid rotation or, or higher guy, but just all those, all those durability concerns point to a lot of signs that maybe he, he better fits in as this high leverage reliever. But again, even in that role, like you said, he's, he's just got to throw more strikes and, and have some better f- command of, of his fastball. So I've got a couple deeper cuts that I'd love to to wrap up on. Yeah. This is for the nerds, right? But um, it's interesting because I like the thing I love about Baseball America's um, rankings or about your, your prospect list is that you, you, rank tools as well like the best tools in the system and i'm always very interested to see who has the best strike zone discipline uh as ranked by baseball america just like just knowing the importance the clubs put on swing decisions and strike zone management um and this year it's spencer horwitz who is a guy who uh really put himself on the map last year in vancouver and then went off to the fall league and was like as hot as the surface of the sun all of a sudden to your mind what like what is behind his breakout how realistic is it how sustainable is it like is he you know becoming a a real like option as as a big leaguer in this organization i think this year will be big for him because we're finally get to see him you know like you said really good in the arizona fall league uh but our, our first real extended look at him against upper level pitching so he was you know, a late round picked out of Radford uh, a, a few years ago. And he, yeah, like you said, best play discipline in in the system, uh, really controls his own patient, draws a lot of walks. And, you know, the thing is he's trying to play left field, more likely maybe just ends up at, at first base. So he's going to have to hit a ton uh, and, and hit for power. And that's never, the power has never really been part of, like a big part of his game. And if you just look at his season numbers overall, you, like you won't see big power numbers. But if you, if you look at maybe the progression of his season, you start to see more power. And I don't think it was entirely a, a fluke because he made some swing adjustments in there where like, you know, he, he just, his hands would kind of like shoot away from his body when he was starting his swing and then he, he made an adjustment to, uh, you know, just keep his hands a little bit tighter in, get some more quickness to his stroke. And you started to see him drive the ball harder. You could see it in the exit velocity numbers, which started to jump for him toward the end of the season. So if, if you just look at, you know, his season as a whole, you, you might still think the the power is more of a question mark. And, and it still kind of is, right? Like we want to see how it holds up over a full season and see how this you know, translates against upper level pitching. 
But there were some pretty promising adjustments that I think he made by the end of the season to start to tap into some more power. So, you know, you combine that with the foundation of his strike zone discipline and, and pretty good, just, you know, pure bat to ball skills. If he can tap into some more power, uh, yeah, I think he's a pretty interesting, I don't know if you call him sleeper or, or not at, at this point, but uh, definitely a, kind of an interesting real late round pick to, uh, to keep an eye on who's, who's getting a little bit closer. And you talk about kind of the jump in, in raw numbers for guys. Uh, Ricky Tiedemann is someone who had quite a jump last year as well. I mean, when the, when the Blue Jays drafted him, it kind of, you know, you'd ask around and kind of hear that the club saw a lot of untapped potential there. They thought, you know, this is a guy who maybe could add some velo and sort of ramp up his stuff just with access to a pro environment and, and resources, coaching, pitching tech, things like that. Lo and behold, he turns pro and all of a sudden he's like sitting 96 uh, and he's made this really rapid progress in terms of his his stuff. How do you evaluate him going forward? Because he's still so young and he looks so different now than he did going into the draft. Like, I feel like there must be a bunch of variants in just how you could kind of project him going forward. Yeah, you know, we start doing the Blue Jays top 30 list going into the off season and, um, you know, had a sense of where he would be and, you know, making calls around on him. And I could ask a question and about Tiedemann and be like, Oh yeah. Like he was 94 to 98. And I'd be like, no, no, no. Like, like Ricky Tiedemann, <laughs> not like, who are you talking about? They're like, yeah. oh, no, no, no. That was, you know, no, he made a huge velocity jump from when he was in junior college in California where all of our reports consistently throughout the year were 88 to 93, you know, scraping a 94. And then I don't, I don't think he even or maybe threw a 94 at, uh, you know, instructional league. Uh, that was probably his lowest end fastball there. It's, you know, obviously shorter burst, but we didn't see 98 in college. Um, you know, really good athlete, uh, you know, six foot four, Lefty, pretty young for a, you know, for a Juco guy. I think he was drafted at uh, 18 still. So, you know, some good projection indicators there, but it came on pretty quickly. So, you know, third round pick, if they redraft him today, I don't think he's making it to the third round because it's just a different, a very different fastball uh, than what it was coming out of junior college. So, yeah, like we have him ninth. Maybe that's too low. <laughs> like it's hard to know how much wow. to account for this big jump in velocity, but it's, yeah, I mean, a good change up to, to go with it. So sometimes when a guy makes that like really fast velo jump, like you hope it's not, you know, putting up more stress on, on his elbow or something, but, um, you, I would definitely rather have Ricky Tiedemann throwing 98 than Ricky Tiedemann throwing 94. So it's one of the, yeah, one of the more encouraging and quick developments to, to happen between the the draft and and the offseason for them. And then my my final deep cut uh is Samad Taylor who had uh like this really interesting 2021 as well and I feel like the evaluations on him are like so all over the place, right? Because it was the yep. numbers at AA 
are super splashy, right? Walked a bunch, huge power numbers, but also huge strikeout numbers as well and swing and miss. So like depending on who you ask, like he could be unlocking something um, and finally tapping into his potential or he could be the product of like a uh, an unsustainable all or nothing approach that will ultimately do him in as he reaches higher levels. Like where do you kind of fall on him between these two poles and what do you make of how just varied the evaluations are? Yeah, I mean, were you guys surprised that they didn't put him on the on the forty man? Or yeah, I was. Yeah, I thought there was a good chance. I mean, just again, I, I wasn't watching him in person for for obvious reasons this year, but um, but yeah, like the numbers were really good, really good. Yeah, like I get, you know, I, I I could see why they would protect, you know, like a Hagen Danner, like you know, if they don't put him on, like yeah, like he throws a hundred miles an hour, somebody's <laughs> going to take a chance on him potentially. You know, and I could see like, you know, other guys they have in that utility type role. So uh, I guess it's a good problem to have when you have that 40 man crunch. But um, I I don't know exactly what the state of the rule five is going to be at the moment. Uh, I assume they will have one if and when this lockout ends. But I think he's a prime candidate to uh, to join another organization, because like you said, it's, yeah, you know, split camp on him where, you know, if you like him, you see a, a really you know, explosive athlete with well above average speed who can, you know, not shortstop really, but, you know, can play second base, can play center field, certainly the uh, the speed to go out there. And a lot of bat speed. I mean, he's not that big, about 5'10", but some of the better just pure bat speed in the organization. So, uh, you know, made some adjustments and, and you saw a little bit more power from him this year, uh, but it is still a high strikeout rate. The swing is kind of in and out of the zone pretty quickly. So there's not a lot of margin for error. So you see some more strikeouts with him. But I think there's, uh, you know, if, if you're just looking at a rule five draft and he's out there, I, I think somebody is going to, you know, take a chance on on him and, and hope they can uh, help him cut down on, on some of the swing emits, especially for, you know, it's not like he's 25 years old and, you know, kind of is what it is. He's still, you know, 23 at this point. So I, I think there's, um, you know, a good chance he, he ends up somewhere else potentially. I guess the other read is that it's telling that the Blue Jays know more about him than anyone and made the, the decision not to put him on the 40-man roster. Like that probably says something yeah. as well about how they evaluate him internally, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, like if you just, you know, talk to evaluators of their club, like you can find people who, <laughs> you know, would be much higher on him, I think, than maybe the, uh, or at least what the Blue Jays are at least suggesting through their 40-man roster decisions. But, you know, again, I, I can kind of see why they would do it based on who else they they had to protect and, and who probably offers more. Uh, you know, maybe long-term value to the organization with, you know, somebody like Leo Jimenez and and, and those right. type of guys too. So may I'll finish with you on, on this one. Um, I'm sure that like you get asked ad nauseum for who's your sleeper. Who's the, who's the breakout? Who's the next big thing? Um, I'm curious to hear like, who's a player that you like in this system or a couple guys that just have like a high likelihood of becoming an average run of the mill completely unremarkable big leaguer right so like not not an all-star you know not a guy that's gonna sign a big free agent contract like somebody who's gonna be ops plus right around 100 or era plus right around 100 just like the the back-end starter the versatile bench piece like 
the Eric Sogard, the Ross Detweiler. Like, who, who do you see from this group who has a, a decent chance of having that kind of career? I actually don't think I get asked that often who will be the uh, run-of-the-mill type guy for, <laughs> to, uh, to watch. But, um, you know, like Zach Logue is, is an intriguing guy. You know, left-handed pitcher um, in, in Buffalo last year who is, you know, just kind of is what he is. I, I think at, at this point he's, what, 25, almost 26. But his, his velocity did jump up a little bit. This this past season, um, you know, topping out at, at 94 from from the left side, and, and his changeup made some strides too. I think that's an above average pitch for him. Uh, you look at the the numbers he had in, in AAA; they were pretty good. He threw strikes, had a you know pretty solid strikeout rate. So um, I think he's somebody who you know is a, like a good depth option, back end starter. Um, you know, I think sometimes we overrate the, you know, safety, quote unquote, of guys who project to be back end starters. So maybe it's, you know, an up and down type guy ultimately. But I, I think he has some of those attributes where he's he's pretty close to being big league ready right now. And I could see him being a guy who could make some starts in, in the back of a rotation this this season. I kept predicting last uh, summer that he would get traded. It never happened, but maybe it'll happen once they. Um, not that I want him to get traded. I mean, it'd, it'd be great if he came up here and did his thing in Toronto. But I just, I just got that vibe, and we'll see where that leads here. But that's an interesting. Well, one. Yeah, I ask because, like, I, I, the mistake I think we make sometimes with prospects is everyone's looking for this guy's going to be an all star. This guy's going to win batting titles. This guy's going to win MVPs. Sure. Like, yeah, not that many guys actually end up doing that but i think the sort of the hallmark of a really good system is do you produce productive big leaguers like guys who contribute at a big league level with positive wins above replacement numbers not five six win players but like half win one win like those are you need those guys like you need those players otherwise you're gonna have to go out and try to find them on, on the free agent market so like it is interesting to me that the blue jays have guys like zach logue i don't know if you put you know bowden francis into that camp as well like guys who aren't going to be remarkable big leaguers or all-stars but guys who can contribute to a contending team as as depth pieces yeah i mean that uh you know it could be i mean they're obviously higher up in the organization uh or at least on their rankings but that you know that could be like the kevin smith or yeah. or otto lopez those types of guys where you know they're pretty close to being big league ready if, if not they're right now so maybe not the the highest ceiling guys or the sexiest profiles where i I don't know that anybody's projecting them to be you know these you know perennial all-stars or anything like that but uh two guys i think of another pretty good chance just to be solid major league contributors uh but probably not impacts uh you know or high impact type guys Ben Badler writes about prospects for Baseball America. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Badler. Read his stuff uh, at Baseball America. You should definitely subscribe because it is a great publication. Tons of good information every year. Uh, we can't thank you enough for the time, man. This has been awesome. It's been great to hear your insight. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Great stuff as always, Ben. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Our thanks again to Ben Badler. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Badler. My name's Arden Swelling and he is Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers this week were Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. I want to thank all of you for listening. We'll talk to you next time on At The Letters.